Hello and welcome to episode 76 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Washington, D.C., Ben Olson. Ben, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks. Today on the show, we have a news item about the American Bar Association considering a minimum bar passage requirement for law schools. We have questions from readers, and we will do some questions from the June 2007 Logical Reasoning. We may or may not have special guest uh, Graham Blake stopping by Ben's office on the show. Yeah, he's in an Uber now. Says oh, he'll take okay. 40 minutes to get here. So Okay, cool. So we should talk to him at some point. We'll see when he comes crashing in. Yeah. How's your Thanksgiving, Ben? Uh, it was good. We... <laughs> We uh, bought everything from the store this year. No, uh, no homemade goods. Really? I mean, it was made at home, but we just went to Trader Joe's and bought your prepared. Uh, I mean, it wasn't like ready, ready. You have to cook it, but it was very easy. Yeah, was it delicious? Yeah, it tasted <laughs> tasted fine to me. So I was like, hey, this is great. Did you have uh, pies and everything? Uh, we had a pumpkin pie. Uh, that was it. Yep. Solid. How about you? Uh, well, I had an American Thanksgiving in Canada. Uh, I'm up here visiting friends in Toronto. Uh, first time I've been here. It's an amazing city, by the way. They celebrate Thanksgiving up there? Well, they do. The Canadian Thanksgiving is like early in um, November, I think. Like November oh, 1st. But we okay. were a bunch of Americans up here. And so we just did our traditional Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving weekend. It just was only Thanksgiving for us and not Thanksgiving for anyone else. Huh. Yeah, uh, which okay. was actually convenient because we could go to the store and buy more booze. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it worked out perfectly. That's good. No, wait, who are you there with? My friends Mike and Nikki and Andy Black, editor of the show, uh, was with us and made a whole bunch of delicious food. Cool. So, yeah, Nikki Black that I've had on the show before, my buddy Mike and uh, Andy. So, yeah, it was good times. Started to feel a little FOMO here. Um, yeah, you really did. We barely <laughs> went outside for four days in a row. <laughs> it's like it's like half the podcast crew there. Yeah, um, it really was. It's okay. I would never be able to get up there. So why Canada? Uh, they moved here for work. Nikki had to move here for work. Uh, so we, I'm sitting in a high-rise in downtown Toronto right now looking at the awesome skyline and the lake and everything. It's, uh, it's pretty spectacular. Have you been here before? Uh, no. I need to go to Canada, our northern neighbor, our friendly northern neighbor, and um, check it out. Have you never been to Canada, period? Never. Oh, wow. Yeah. it's. Yeah. Uh, I'd been to Vancouver before, and Vancouver is a super cool city, but uh, Toronto is also really, really nice. Yeah. I don't think I would want to be here very much in like January, February, but... Uh, We've actually gotten decent weather the past few days that I've been in the city again. So it's, uh, yeah, people walking around outside. Yesterday we saw people eating their lunch, sitting outside. Uh, not bad for almost December. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and since Graham Blake is from Canada, is he from Toronto? I can't remember now. No, he lives in Montreal. Oh, Montreal. Okay. Uh, yeah, today this today's podcast, I guess, is dedicated to Canada. Yeah, totally. It's a, it's a great place. It's very nice here. I'm, I'm amazed. I mean, I not, I, not like it should be surprising, but uh, it's super clean and it's just very 
very nice. It's a really good city. If you ever get a chance to take a vacation or something, bring your wife here or something. It'll be, be fun, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. What do you think about this news item that we got from the Wall Street Journal? Um, did you skim it? Did you see what's I did. happening? I did. I did read it, and uh, I have mixed reactions to it. Uh, what is the basic gist? The ABA is considering um, revoking the accreditation of some law schools if they don't get their bar passage rate up above a certain percentage. I can't remember. Did they say the percentage? Yeah, the article is by Sarah Randazzo, and it was in the mm -hmm. Wall Street Journal. Uh, actually, weirdly, don't have the title of the article right here, but it was Randazzo in the Wall Street Journal, uh, November 21st. And it's uh, a 75% bar passage requirement. 75% um, of graduates of the school who sit for the bar exam, 75% of them must pass it within two years of graduation or else uh, the school, I guess, would yeah, lose their accreditation from the ABA. Okay. Yeah. So when I, when I, as I was reading through this, my first reaction was that seems reasonable enough. These people are going to law school to ultimately practice law. Not everyone, obviously, but the vast majority, I'm assuming 75%. And so if a school isn't able to produce 75% of their graduates who are able to pass the bar, they seem like they're failing on some level. At the same time, uh, I started thinking about all the things that might happen once you start creating rules that uh, then people just have to meet and they might end up skewing things in weird directions. I think it's kind of hard to predict. So I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it, it see, I agree with you. You know, unintended consequences are always um, problematic potentially, mm -hmm. but uh, it does seem pretty reasonable that if a school is not graduating a healthy percentage, or sorry, if it's not having bar passage from a healthy percentage of its applicants, then maybe they, I don't think it's that they're not providing the right legal education. Um, mm -hmm. I just think it's these people shouldn't have been in law school in the first place. Mm -hmm. They are uh, essentially getting ripped off by the schools. You know, that's yeah. the, that's, that to me seems, seems like the big problem. And that's what the, that's basically the rationale from the ABA is they see this as a consumer protection action. Yeah. I, and it's hard to disagree with that goal. I just don't know if the means is, is the right means. Cause a lot of times, you know, just in other contexts, when regulations are passed and they're very, very well intended, they can have really bizarre consequences that end up hurting people even more. Um, I'm trying to think of this one book that I read a long, long time ago that went through all the regulations for uh, like financial regulations and the evolution of them and how they've just ballooned, you know, over time. And the reason they've had to balloon is because 
the previous set of regulations created a new set of problems, yeah. some worse than the solution they were trying to solve. And then in order to solve those problems, they had to create even more regulations and even more specifications. So in some ways, I kind of feel like it would be better for the just the world <laughs> in general, which I think it's already doing, and that is to shine a light on this problem and educate people about what they're getting into. Yeah. And kind of let them learn that. Some people will learn it the hard way, but I, I just feel like with this, two things will probably happen right away. One is schools won't accept people with as competitive scores, which is probably a good thing because they probably shouldn't be accepting those people anyways and just taking their money uh, when those people are very likely to fail out of law school or at least not pass the bar. <laughs> but the other thing that's going to happen is law schools are going to turn a lot of their attention, I think, to bar-related stuff, which could be good or bad. I don't know, but that's just maybe changing what legal education looks like, and that could be Good or bad, I don't know, but it sounds to me like it'd be kind of turning law school into a trade school. Which it's supposed to be in the first place. I mean, it's professional training for people who want to be practicing lawyers. Yeah, I I agree with that to some extent. Although, I mean, when they're trying to focus on the bar, I don't know that necessarily the bar is the greatest test for... <laughs> deciding whether you're going to be a good lawyer or not. Hey, that's a whole different debate, you know. <laughs> is 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 the bar the bar itself the problem? Yeah. You know, may, maybe it is. Maybe the bar is the problem. I don't know. I don't I don't consider bar passage to be the be all end all. I do know though that it's a necessary step. If you don't pass the bar, you can't practice law, and that's the reality of the situation. That is the reality of the situation. You know, so that, that seems unlikely to change. So mm -hmm. then shouldn't, don't, don't the law schools have a responsibility? I, you know, I'm going to go back actually to your, your point about them maybe just shining a light here mm -hmm. because I, it did strike me today that, you know, I've been doing this now for 10 years and for 10 years I've been hearing these rumors about schools potentially losing their accreditation. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I am familiar with a school that has actually lost its accreditation, but it seems like the threat is always there. And we're just constantly having this conversation. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it is good that we're talking about it, certainly. So it'll be interesting, I guess, to watch and see what happens. Yeah. I mean, heck, implement it and then <laughs> see what happens. There's nothing like trying it out. I mean, the people who are really pushing back on this, right, are the low-ranked law schools because it's going to impact them the most. Mm -hmm. And then specifically, their defense here is, well, this is going to hurt us because we have all these diversity initiatives. We're trying to make the, the legal field, you know, more black and more Latino. And how are we supposed to do that if you're going to hammer us if these people don't end up passing the bar? Yeah, that is such a that is such a, a mixed bag because I, I can sympathize with that goal. But obviously, a lot of these people regardless of their color are going who sh if you're not scoring well and you end up going to school and then you end up not passing the bar you've just spent a lot of money on something completely worthless yeah and it's like well what are we doing here are we giving these people opportunity to succeed or are we giving you uh a, an opportunity 
to rip them off. You know, yeah. low ranked law school. Like, are you are you really doing them a favor here by yeah. by letting them ruin their entire financial future? What and and it's I don't know. It just seems like a pretty obvious counter is like, hey, are you really increasing diversity in the legal profession if these people don't pass the bar? Sure. How <laughs> you're. You're increasing diversity in your law school classroom, which is just like a bigger market for you to, to charge tuition. Yeah. But if these people aren't eventually passing the bar, then how can you call yourself a law school? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, Connor, the, the the person who sent us this article, thank you, Connor, mentioned one thing in his email that I thought was very true, and that is that he thought that these lower-ranked law schools sh- should charge less. That sure, maybe um, you have a lower bar passage rate, but if you're charging less, then these students who are taking that risk uh, to go to law school and hopefully pass the bar, but maybe not, are taking less risk by paying less for law school, which reminds me of what uh, Zachary Kayla was talking about a long time ago about how uh, in the heyday of law schools in the early 2000s, when all these low-tier law schools wanted to be like all the big-tier law schools by hiring fancy professors and basically transforming themselves into little think tanks, which they're really not meant to be. It sounds to me like they need to go back to the old days (laughs) where a small local law school was just teaching students with regular professors, not professors from the top 15, <laughs> teaching students how to practice law in their local area. And that was it. And they didn't charge exorbitant big tier law school prices. They just tar- charged regular prices for going to school for three years. In which case, I think lower ba- bar passage rates wouldn't be such a big deal because you haven't invested so much money into that process. Yeah. Instead of stripping the accreditation based on some percentage thing how about just a mandate that the schools refund tuition for people who can't pass the bar <laughs> yeah that would be interesting well i mean it's it's kind of silly that that you laugh at that right i mean i i understand why you're laughing because it's like oh well they'd never go for that <laughs> of course <laughs> yeah, they're not I- gonna do that I think I think something in the middle. I think there should be some sort of financial consequence so that they they adjust their pricing or something. Uh, but it, it, I laugh partly because it's a shared responsibility, right? Like if you're on the school end, you're gonna be like, well, someone just kind of doesn't invest themselves into the whole process and they fail. How how much of that is our fault? How much of that is their I don't know. Fault? It's the asymmetric information is the problem, you know. I mean, I feel like the consumers need to be protected. The law schools have all the cards and they, you know, they act like, "Oh, this is going to transform your life and you know, oh, we can charge whatever we want to charge because you're going to be a big fancy lawyer and these kids are just so naive. I, you know, I just hate to see them going. Yeah. So they're marching themselves to the firing squad. Yeah. Yeah. It's not good. In the past, we've talked about uh, how low tier law schools should go away. And I feel like this kind of reiterates that point. Do you agree? Well, it's just that they can't have it both ways. 
you know, they're, they're, they're going to exist, but they're not going to, you know, they're not, there's, there's not an expectation that the people who, I mean, cause we haven't even scratched the surface of employment yet. That's a whole other story. Sure. Yeah. You, know? you pass the bar, but now you go work at Starbucks. <laughs> right. And so I don't know. It, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think there can be a place for lower ranked schools. I totally agree about how much money they're charging. That just seems outrageous. I would like to, you know, remind listeners that I'm, I'm also not saying don't ever go to a low rank school because if you can go to a low rank school on a scholarship, it might be an awesome deal. Yeah. The yeah. people I'm worried about are the people that are paying that full tuition at the lower rank schools. Yeah. I, you know, the, their, your odds of passing the bar are not great in a lot of cases. Your odds of finding employment, even if you do pass the bar are also not great slash even worse. And so you have to really know what you're buying. Anyway, probably nothing will happen and uh, things will just, you know, status quo will just continue. That seems to be <laughs> pretty much how things go. So That's right. Welcome to uh, the legal profession where yeah. everything stays the same. Yeah. If, well, ben and I will be here again 10 years from now talking about some, <laughs> a new article in the Wall Street Journal. It'll be called the Trump Journal by then. Yeah. And... Uh, It'll be same same thing. We'll be arguing about whether people should go to these low rank schools. Well, bottom line here, I think if I were the uh, ABA czar, I would or somehow could control the world, I would make these lower tier law schools charge less somehow, hopefully with some sort of incentive, and then uh, probably, yeah, probably not worry as much about the bar passage rate. Just try to get those prices down. Yeah. You could also like discount it based on how difficult that state's bar exam is. Yeah. Because that was the other complaint was like, well, wait a minute. If I'm in Mississippi, you know, the Mississippi bar might be really easy and the California bar is really hard. Mm-hmm. So how, why is that fair then that the 75% standard applies to across the board? You could figure out some way to like say, oh, well, if. 40% of bar takers fail in your state, then you have to give a 60% discount or something like that when people fail. Yeah, yeah. That would like auto-correct, right? Yeah. If, if you have a 95% bar passage rate in your state, then you have to give them a 95% refund or something. I don't know. Whatever. I'll let the people in charge figure out the math, Ben. I don't need to do it myself. <laughs> Now that we've solved the problem, we'll We're just, just uh, idea, we'll punt on, the de- yeah. <laughs> on the details. That's for you lot to figure out. We've, we've, we gave you the idea. Now go do it. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Um, we have a letter here from Matt. And it says, Ben and Nathan, I've been studying on my own for about four months. And the average of my last five prep tests is 169. I have a 164 on record from September, but I know I'm capable of more. I usually miss one to three in reading comp, but it seems every fourth section of reading comp I will inexplicably whiff on a passage or two and miss five to seven. This happened in September. I feel it must be that I'm losing focus momentarily slash working less efficiently at times. I'm wondering if you have any tips for minimizing the likelihood of this happening in December. And then we'll get to Matt's other question. What do you think about that so far? Yeah, well, if it is a, if it is coming from a momentary lack of focus, 
I would try to be really sensitive to when you understand what you're reading and when you don't. I think there is this, this at least when I'm going through the passage, there's times when I'm reading and it's making sense and I'm just plowing forward. And then there are other times when it's like, it doesn't totally make sense. It's not like I didn't understand each of the words that I read, but it's not like I can completely see what the author is saying. And I have two choices at that moment in time. I can either press forward or I can stop and force myself to reread what I just read or to look back at something I read earlier to try to reconcile the confusion that I'm having. And it seems like almost always that time that I take to reconcile my confusion or to reread the last sentence that I just read to try to clarify things pays off. There's a question that deals with that confusion yeah. or the next few sentences ne- next few sentences now make so much more sense because I'm understanding what I read before. So I feel like Matt might just need to be more sensitive to when he's sort of drifting or kind of not pulling it all together. Yeah, for me if if I'm not having a little internal dialogue with the with the the, the speaker, if I'm not mm-hmm. saying, "Oh, hey, what about this?" or "Oh, I bet you're going to say Next, I bet you're going to say X, Y, Z. Or, mm-hmm. oh, interesting, why did you say that? You know, what, what's your, do you have evidence for that assertion that you just made? If I'm not doing that as I'm reading the passage, then, yeah, I, I might just not be getting it. And it's mm-hmm. really easy to let your eyes glaze over and just get down to the end of the passage and be like, oh, yeah, I got it. It was about something, you know, and you've got, like, the topic, but you don't actually even know what the thesis of the, of the passage was. Yeah. So... I guess I've said it a lot on recent shows is that it should feel easy if you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. And so maybe, yeah, what, what you said that he needs to get, he should, he should try to catch it earlier. You know, mm-hmm. what, when he starts feeling that like, Oh, this is, Whoa, this is puzzling. Okay. Well, if it is, then you, that's the time now to stop and wake up, you know, sharpen up. Yeah. Maybe reread the last sentence you just read Maybe make a prediction about what you think you're going to read next, but catch it now, like nip it in the bud instead of waiting until you're already, you know, struggling with the questions. Yeah. We were uh, just going over a question the other night in logical reasoning. It was a very long question for logical reasoning and it was very wordy and had a lot of um, big words. And someone said, I just, I didn't really understand what was going on here. It was a very strange um, question, and I agree. If you just read the passage, just read right through it, you'd be like, I don't know what this just said. But I was like, well, okay, what do you think is going on? Do you have any idea of what's going on? And they're like, no, I just it's just very confusing. I said, well, how about the first sentence? Do you know what the first sentence is saying? Well, it's a little wordy, but okay, go ahead and reread it now. Don't worry about the whole thing. Just tell me what that's saying. Yeah. And that was a little confusing, but it's like, okay, well – because it was kind of a long sentence with <laughs> several clauses, you know, inserted into it. So it's like, well, tell me what you think this clause is saying. Okay, well, this clause is saying that. Yeah, I didn't tell you that. You you figured that out. Now, what's the other clause saying? Uh, okay, hold on. Uh, yeah, okay, it's saying this. Yeah, okay, so together, what's that saying? And they're telling me this in their own words, and it makes, of course, way more sense than the way the LSAT test writers have written it. But it's not like this stuff is impossible. It's not easy, but I think you just have to break it down into smaller steps. Yeah, I like that. If if the whole thing is intimidating, 
just do the first sentence or do the first clause of the first sentence. Mm-hmm. See if you can understand what they're talking about step by step. <laughs> it's it's funny. People are like, oh, I'll just read the next sentence because that'll help me to understand it. Yeah. But no, not really. You, you needed to understand the sentence you were reading right now. One thing I think about the test is I think that they tend to make it harder in two ways, generally. And that is, one, they take easy ideas and they rewrite them in sort of abstract language that makes it hard to decipher what was said. Because when you break those things down and you're like, well, all this first sentence is saying is that some people like ice cream. They just said it in a really long and convoluted way. And some people don't like ice cream. What can we infer from this? Everyone in the class is like, oh, well, blah, blah, blah. That means this. And you're like, yeah. So the logic there wasn't hard at all. It was just hidden in convoluted language yeah i like that the flip side of that is sometimes you get these formal logic you know questions or games it's no one's debating what was said everybody knows that there are six people that's not confusing but it's sort of like well what does that imply and so as long as you can figure out how to read and figure out how to make inferences then you can do any question on this test it doesn't matter whether you're talking about games reading comp or logical reasoning cool i like that he also asks he said, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing you guys talk about how your students felt about the September test in general. Uh, we probably touched on that a tiny bit, but now that it's been some time, Ben, what are you, what are you hearing about the, the September 2016 test? Uh, I think that some, I mean, it's kind of like what usually happens. Some people really liked it and were happy with what happened, and some people were not very happy with it. I did hear more complaints about, obviously, the last game, which we talked about before, and the um, the reading comp. I think the, the people didn't like the the passage about uh, the art, the humanities passage. So um, I think a lot of people liked disliked many different things about it, but those were the the two things I heard most commonly. Okay, so maybe Matt just caught a tough section of reading comp there, and maybe that won't happen. In December, the test does seem to fluctuate in difficulty uh, from test to test, so maybe he'll get lucky. Yeah, you know, I ended up uh, taking it finally, and I did like that game. I, I did think it took some time to think through it, but what I thought was most interesting was that there were three logical reasoning questions that spoke directly to Trump. Allegedly. I've seen those questions and those tests that was written way before Trump was a candidate. Oh yeah, no, 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 no. I'm not I'm not saying that's what I actually said in class. I said these were written a long time oh, ago. Oh, oh, you're just saying because it said demagogue. But yeah, that is what everyone did. Everyone was like, Oh Trump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you have the demagogue one, you have the rigged election one, and then there was another one about someone uh who need to step down or something. I can't remember now. But it was <laughs> I was like, what funny timing, because, yeah, these were written, like, I think they were written as as much as three years ago. I I think that there's, like, a big delay in the um, uh, explanation, or the experimental section. I would imagine it has to be, because they have to get it out, yeah, they, whatever magic tricks they're doing. Yeah. But, anyways, that was kind of fun. Fun to read as I was doing it. Cool. Yeah, the only thing I really heard about the September test, or I've seen it now, and the, the only thing I... I had really to say about it is that the first three games were easy and the fourth game was easy too if you just kept your wits about you. 
Yeah, I suppose that makes sense. Okay, so spoiler alert, we're going to talk about the uh, Game 4 from the uh, September 2016 LSAT. So uh, you might want to skip the next couple minutes if you don't want to get tainted on how that game works. Um, you know, people are like, I got an email yesterday from a student who, she's actually really doing quite well, but she's she said that she has problems on games like this. And she specifically was talking about the computer virus game. I have problems with games like this. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Because if you mean by games like this, the only thing you can possibly mean is a game that doesn't have really precedent on the LSAT. Yeah. It's just, it's something totally new. Mm -hmm. And it, but even then, you know, it's, so whatever, it was weird, but it was not that difficult. There was a big inference in that game, right? There were only two possibilities for who could go first. Yep, only two possibilities. And, mm -hmm. and when you see that, then just the game becomes cake. It was also because the, what was it, S or something, had to pass to one of those same mm -hmm. two guys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. So then it's just like, well, there's only there's a couple ways we could do this, and then the game gets really, really easy. So what you had to do there was you had to do really well on games one through three and have enough time and enough confidence to be careful and understand and make those connections on game four. If you did make those connections on game four, you could score perfectly on that section um, pretty easily, I think. It comes down to whether you put them together or not. Yeah, and I didn't feel like the first three games were that challenging. No. Right, that's my point. I mean, people always think like, oh, that game four, if it wasn't for that game four, I would have done perfectly. And it's like, well, how long did you have to do it? Oh, I had five minutes. Okay, well, <laughs> your problem then is not game four. Your problem is that you only had five minutes left when you looked at game four. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you need to get better at the easy stuff. Yeah. Because games one, two, and three there were all really easy. I mean, you could just kill those games. Sure. If you had five minutes for any of those games, based on how long they actually took you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have done well in them either. Yeah. When you end up on game, uh, if you do do those games in five or, five or six or seven minutes apiece, though, you know, then you end up looking at, at game four with, 15 minutes left yeah and at that point i would think you know hopefully you can make that connection realize that there's only a couple ways to do it and then just kill it all right next letter this is from kurt kurt says i have been looking for law school's specialties litigation tax constitutional law etc i haven't had the easiest time with finding these i have found rankings but i was astonished and have a hard time believing some of the law schools, litigation for example, uh, rank so much higher than schools like Harvard and Columbia. So Kurt didn't name specific schools there, but there are lists of specialties and you'll have some random law school that's way outranking Harvard uh, for litigation. That Well, hold on. Let's just stop there for a second. What is he even talking about? Law schools don't specialize. Right. But U.S. News posts, I think it's U.S. News or there's other sources too post these stupid lists of rankings for various specialties. But it, it, it's all superficial because every law school has to do what the ABA is telling them. So they're basically all carbon copies of each other. And the only difference is the average LSAT score and average GPA of the people who are admitted. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I mean, I don't mean to oversimplify it, but that's in essence what's going on here. I mean, I'm sure different deans at different law schools have different goals and they love to see their school, you know, helping people with litigation and so forth. And I'm, I'm sure there's some marginal differences from school to school, but in general, all these schools are the same. The only difference is the caliber of the students that they're recruiting. 
Yeah, your first year you're going to have literally the exact same courses no matter where you go. Um, your second year you're going to have lots and lots of the same courses no matter where you go. Schools do have specialties, con you know, concentrations, or they in their glossy brochures mm -hmm. they have these things. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's these stupid rankings that are out there uh, that you know, like, oh, this is the best school for entertainment law. If you want to learn more about this, I would really recommend uh, Paul Campos's book. Uh, don't go to law school unless I think I might have mentioned it in the last episode. He has a little blurb in there that just completely destroys the idea of these specialty rankings. Mm. Um, he just mocks them mercilessly. Uh, so I think that's our answer. Yeah. Is uh, basically don't look at specializations. Yeah. Um, go to the best school you can get into for the best price. And yeah, just because you want to be an entertainment lawyer, I don't know that going to some other school that happens to rank high in quote unquote entertainment law really means anything. I think what matters more is probably location, right? So if you want to get involved in entertainment law in LA, then go to a school in Southern California. Yeah. But even then, you know, it's like if, if, uh, some law school happens to, you know, I would imagine USC probably has some like reputation for entertainment law. Mm hmm. But I don't think that makes it a better choice than UCLA. Oh, no, no. I would just say, like, be in the area where you want to yeah, yeah. practice. No, I, I agree with you. I'm I'm saying, but don't take that to mean that just because they are located somewhere and have this, you know, allegedly have a specialty doesn't really mean that that's a better choice. Yeah. You know, in the Bay Area, Santa Clara, I think, has like this big, you know, intellectual property or startup or you know that kind of thing mm, they have mm. a reputation for that but if your choice was to go to berkeley or go to santa clara <laughs> you know berkeley is a much better choice no matter what type of law you want to practice yeah, yeah for sure uh, okay so kurt goes on and wants to ask some questions about his personal story his schedule for the lsat it says he's obligated to army for four more years but we'll definitely be attending law school immediately after the contract is fulfilled, shooting for a bunch of really high-ranked schools. I'm aware of your opinion about overstudying, so I am considering two approaches. One, either take my time and focus on hard reading to improve reading comprehension over the next six to nine months. Two, take the LSAT in June and study until then. I do have the free time to study right now. Improving on reading comprehension, as I'm aware, is considered the most difficult to improve on, but I see my RC struggles to be largely a product of my personal and educational background with abstract poetry and prose, like Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. Mm -hmm. What do you think about all that so far? Well, so my first reaction is when he says uh, to focus hard on reading, I don't think it's a bad thing to focus on what you're not good at but given the fact that he's scoring a 159 he definitely has you know opportunities to improve in the other three sections and i would encourage anyone including kurt to just rotate through the three sections he, he should probably give more time to reading comp if that's where he's losing more points but it he should never step away from the other two sections more than a couple days 
like it, ideally you're seeing a little bit of everything every day or every other day that you're studying. Yeah, I agree. Um, he'll get better at reading comprehension if he gets better at logical reasoning. For sure. By the way. Yeah. Reading comprehension has mostly must be true questions, but it also has a strengthen question or a weaken question here or there, and it'll have main point questions, and all that stuff is in the logical reasoning. So getting great at logical reasoning has a way of sort of naturally dragging up your reading comprehension score as well. Yep. I can't see how it would benefit him to drag this out forever if he's already studying for the LSAT. I mean, he's already listening to the podcast. I would think that June of 2017 seems like I can't imagine putting it off later than that. Can you? No, I, I would say shoot for February. I mean, we've said this, you know, a hundred times. I think he's got like two months at least. So why not take 35 minute sections until February, see where he's at. He'll know where he's at. If he's ready, take it. If he's not, then yeah, okay. Maybe take it in June, but I don't see why he couldn't start climbing up to well he says he wants to get into the mid to high 170s as soon as possible i mean i don't know if if he can do that by february but that's just because i don't know if anyone can do that by any time necessarily you know it's by definition a very uh, hard score to get to i don't want to be discouraging but i would just see how high he can get by february and if it's a pretty good score then take it yeah mid 170s is already super elite so do you need that high of a score? <laughs> no, people are like, well, I want to get close to perfect, but they don't realize that 170 is already pretty close to perfect. Yeah, you're in the top 2% at that point. At 170. Yeah. yeah. And top uh, 1% at like 173. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about getting an elite, elite score. It's hard then to, I, I guess the only, you know, and really, no matter what your goal is, you'll know when your practice test scores reach that level yeah and given the fact that he has a 3.8 he doesn't necessarily need a mid to high 170 to even get into these schools uh that he wants to get into so i don't know i would just um i would break it up focus on all three sections maybe more on whatever you're struggling with most and then shoot for february and if you're not ready then fine shoot for june but hopefully it should be done by then I'm currently using the Harvard Law Review and one passage a day from LSATs in the 20s and 30s so that I will not be spoiled for proctored tests. On the sections, I am truly taking my time and carefully analyzing my work in order to simply transform my reading style. Um, I'm skeptical. What do you think? I think I know what you're going to say. Well, I guess I'm I'm not sure what he means, so I'd be curious what you're thinking. Well, he's doing one passage a day of real LSATs, right? Mm-hmm. A real LSAT reading comprehension. He's doing one passage a day, but he's not timing himself. Oh, yeah. And he says he's, you know, he's he's trying to transform his reading style. Well, be careful that you don't transform your reading style to some style that works but does not work when the clock is ticking. Mm-hmm. Right. If he, I mean, because anybody could sit there with it all day, and answer the questions correctly. Yeah. But that's not the point. The point is, can you do it in thirty-five minutes? Mm-hmm. So I get what he's doing. That he's just oh, because what he's really trying to do is just do a bunch of hard reading. He's reading the Harvard Law Review. Yeah. Um, that sounds horrible. <laughs> 
which is why, I, why we don't practice law. <laughs> yeah, I would not do that. I would read for pleasure. Really, I, people don't believe me, but I, you should be reading for pleasure. If you want to become a better reader, just read for pleasure. I think if he's trying to prepare for the reading passages, I think Harvard Law, like a focused reading of the Harvard Law Review, would probably be better than reading a fiction book, don't you think? <sighs> if you feel like kicking yourself in the nuts every day. Well, if you're trying to, if you, if you, I'm not saying to do it all the time, but if he's doing, he's sitting down, he's like, okay, now I'm going to be preparing for the LSAT. I think that that the more convoluted, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming god-awful academic prose would be good for his mental muscles when it comes to reading it's not what i would ever tell anybody to do I, that's like almost the opposite of what i would tell people to do here, here, the truth here's, about the, here's the problem though when you read like a book that's like I, i'm not if, if you're talking about reading versus not reading i think reading a novel or something that's interesting to you is beneficial but when you're talking about reading for 20 minutes reading a book like a novel versus reading the Harvard Law Review, you're going to you're gonna have to like learn how to deal with abstraction and other poorly written sentences much more with a Harvard Law Review article, right? Uh, okay. I just, I, I, I would, yeah. It's not, I would never advise anybody to read something they don't feel like reading. You, the, the reading comprehension passages are not that bad. They're actually interesting when you get into them. And the Harvard Law Review is going to be really that bad. And you're not even going to know what they're talking about. And I feel like you're training yourself to hate reading, training yourself to not comprehend when you're reading some bullshit like that. So I'm not, I'm also not saying I want you to get a fourth grade. <laughs> I don't want, I'm not, I don't want you reading the Hardy Boys. Well, I don't I, think I you're saying you read, that, but even if you say like, uh, you know, what kind of novel are you saying? Any novel. There's a billion novels out there. It could be a nonfiction book too. It just reads something that is interesting. There's a zillion books in the world, and they're, they're challenging. They're plenty challenging. You can find a novel that would be over your head. I don't recommend a novel that's over your head. I would recommend a novel that's like at a good level for you. Yeah, so, but how does, that, how does that help with learning how to read abstract sentences? It helps you, you get a vastly better vocabulary. You get a vastly better understanding of the English language just simply from doing it. Oh, I agree. So if you're talking about doing nothing versus, hey, I want to spend a couple of my day, couple hours of my day reading, then that's definitely going to be better than nothing. But when you're talking about sitting down to study for the LSAT and you could spend 20 minutes reading a Harvard Law Review article versus reading a novel, I feel like the Harvard Law Review article is going to force you to deal with sentences that are hard to read. Yeah. All right. I, yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying it's not going to. I'm. And I'm definitely. Yes. The Harvard Law Review would be better than not reading. The problem with the Har Harvard Law Review is that it will make you not read. You're not going to like it, so you're going to put it down. I want something that you can't put down. Hmm. I want you to be that kid that's walking down the sidewalk on your way home from school, reading a novel as you walk down the street. Those are the people who score perfect on the reading comprehension. Because they're always. You know, yeah. Because they're just they love reading and they're good at it. <laughs> and and I've, I, I feel like this idea of I'm going to read The Economist or I'm going to read something dense or like super intense is masochism. I mean, yeah, it would work. And if you've got the fortitude, you know, to do that, then I guess fine. But 
you don't have to be flagellating yourself. You could... <laughs> well, wait, hold on. So I, I don't think that we're, we're entirely disagreeing here. I think that what I'm saying is when you're sitting down to study, I, I wouldn't advocate that this person sit, sit on their bed and read the Harvard Law Review for three hours a day for precisely what you're saying. I don't think they would do it. But maybe the best solution here is to find a book that you would like reading read that all the time when you're not even studying for the LSAT because you're not really studying for the LSAT. You're enjoying the book, but you're also getting yourself to read a lot. And then every day, maybe take 10, 15 minutes to read through some of this hard stuff. I think there's plenty of old passages out there that you could go find old passages and not run out of material to read. But uh, if you are concerned about that, then why not pick up the Harvard Law Review for 15 minutes of reading to sort of force yourself to work through convoluted sentences that you aren't going to find in a book like that. Ideally, you'll hate the Harvard Law Review so much that you'll decide not to go to law school and it'll be <laughs> the best decision you ever made. No, that's something we can definitely agree on. Hopefully yeah. <laughs> you realize what the hell you're getting into and run as far away as possible. <laughs> yeah. All right. That puts a nice little bow on it there. Um <laughs> Let's see. Okay, so I think that's it for our letters. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to do a logical reasoning question? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I think we're on question number 10. We're in section 3 of the June 2007 LSAT. This test is freely available. You can play along at home by downloading uh, that test and attempt this question. Again, section 3, uh, question number 10. and It starts with the word advertisers. You can do it on your own and then uh, listen, you know, maybe pause the podcast and come back and listen to the explanation. Uh, why don't you read it, Ben? Advertisers have learned that people are more easily encouraged to develop positive attitudes about things towards which they originally have neutral or even negative attitudes if those things are linked with pictorial help rather than exclusively through prose to things about which they have already have wait, sorry about which they already have positive attitudes holy smokes that was a long sentence yeah six lines roughly 50 words just guessing way more words than you want to be putting into your sentences and when you're writing your personal statement please try to stick to a hard like 30 words per sentence maximum <laughs> Um, because it just makes it, the longer you go, the harder it is to understand. Yeah, I was I was running out of breath there, actually. Yeah, exactly. No, but you know what? That's a that's a, a that's a little writing tip. Um, when you you know the whole that's I think the whole point of reading it, things out loud. Mm -hmm. It's clear to me when you haven't read your personal statement out loud, because as I'm reading it, I can feel myself running out of breath. Mm -hmm. And it's like you never would have written this if you had read this out loud. You would have you would have fixed it because you would realize that the sentence is not possible. Mm -hmm. It just goes on and on and on and it's all one thought. Yeah, exactly. Going back to the sentence, I actually, I, I kind of kept going because it was making sense. But when you do break sentences like this down, they usually end up becoming very short sentences that are very easy to understand, bite-sized pieces. So basically, there are apparently people who have maybe neutral or even negative attitudes towards some things. And advertisers have learned that you can develop positive or it's easier to develop positive attitudes toward those things if those things are linked with pictorial help. In other words, with pictures rather than prose, which prose is just writing, 
if those things are linked with pictures rather than writing to things that you already have positive attitudes about. It's why politicians kiss babies. <laughs> it's why beer. It's why beer commercials have like a bunch of hot chicks in it. Yep. It's because it's it's yeah. I mean, this is obvious. This is obviously true in、mm-hmm. real life.、Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to sell some cookies? You just well, cookies we already like. Let's see. It's got to be something that you don't want to like, right? So、yeah. I don't give a shit about、uh, laundry dishwasher detergent, but you put that next to puppies. And then I go, ooh, puppies! And I like puppies. And then I, it sort of, you know, rubs off on the that dishwasher. Yeah, and I feel、dishwasher. like I've actually seen that, right? And little bears. Yeah, or whatever, right? Just <laughs> unicorns, man. I mean, any, anything that you have a that you, that you already have a natural affinity for,、mm-hmm. advertisers are going to play on that by trying to associate that with things that you have a negative or、uh, neutral attitude about. Yeah, and they're going to do that with pictures as opposed to. Text right, pictorial help, pictorial help. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. Now, what do you think about that next sentence? Yeah. So the next sentence says, "Therefore, advertisers are likely to blank whenever you see a blank in logical reasoning, which is not super common, but when it does happen, fill it in." Yeah. Fill in the blank. Yeah.、Um, specifically, I would say fill it in conservatively. Yes. These arguments, I think it it's like a little bit of a trap, right? They 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 give you a blank, and they're like, oh, let's see what they'll put in that, you know,、mm-hmm. that that you could easily feel like, oh, it's my argument now,、mm-hmm. so I get to put whatever I want, or I'm gonna like figure out where they were going and go there next, and the wrong answers are gonna frequently. Overstate where they actually were going next. Yeah. So I don't even have a really. I don't think this is a separate category of question, Ben. I would call this a must be true. So I would as well. Although I have run some numbers, and I actually just did this recently, and ab- about、uh, one of every ten of these questions is a strengthening question. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the question stem is going to be different in that case. The question stem is going to be different, yes. But so what I'm saying is, even though you have a blank, it's not. Oh yeah, yeah. not necessarily it must be true. But、right. in that case, it's very rare, by the way. So even if you don't、yeah. realize that, it's not going to be a problem. But let's. We might as well make that explicit, right? This question stem says which one of the following most logically completes the argument. Yep. And I really think that's a must be true. All we need to do is pick the answer that has been proven to be true. Yes. So,、uh, what would be your prediction here? Advertisers are likely well, to hold on. Before we do that, can we do the other question stem? Oh, sure. Yep. Just so that people can understand the distinction. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I think it would. It's something like which one of the following, if true, would most logically complete the argument. That's exactly right. Yep.、Mm-hmm. Okay. That if true is a big, big difference. If it doesn't say if true, then it's really a must be true question. It's asking you to pick the one that you have evidence for.、Mm-hmm. If it says which one of the following if true completes the argument, now it's like, hey, which one of these helps the argument the most? And so that becomes a strengthening question. Yeah. Okay. It really, I mean, it's amazing how often people miss a question like that because they don't really understand what the what question they're looking at.、Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. So. It's a must be true question. Yep. Go ahead. Oh, so therefore, advertisers are likely to 
my my prediction would be associate um, negative things that they're trying to sell with positive things that you like through pictures. <laughs> yeah, put Trump next to a picture of a donut. Yep. You know, because I don't like him, but I do like donuts, so now it's going to rub off a little bit on Trump, maybe. Yeah. That's the point. <laughs> okay. Cool. So answer choice A says, use little, if any, written prose in their advertisements. <sighs> Seems a little strong to me. Yeah, it, it didn't say that. It said you're they are going to use pu- puppies, pictures of puppies, in this one circumstance. Yeah. But they didn't say they're not going to also have, you know, a 400-page white paper that accompanies it. The other thing, too, is if you quickly look back at the passage, which I sometimes do, I, I didn't like this answer, but just now to sort of, like, support why I don't like this with text, it says... They will often link these things together with pictorial help rather than exclusively through prose. Uh, okay, so they won't do it exclusively through prose, which means that they'll do prose maybe with something else, and prose could constitute more than half of that. So, oh yeah, it could still have the. It could still be the vast majority, according to that. It's just not exclusively prose. Okay, so we got rid of it. A's out. B. Try to encourage people to develop positive attitudes about products that can be better represented pictorially than in prose. Doesn't sound like the right set of products. No, well, no, it just it didn't say that, right? No. I mean, we can easily picture a puppy, but you could use a puppy to to sell internet service, right? Even though internet service is not like a typically something that you can like picture, you know, a picture of internet yeah. service. Yep. What's that look like? But you could still just put a whole bunch of puppies and then your brand, you know, your logo or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that would work. So I don't think B is really what they were talking about. Nope. C, place their advertisements on television rather than in magazines. No, because you can have pictures in magazines. For sure. D, Highlight the desirable features of the advertised product by contrasting them with by contrasting them pictorially with undesirable features of a competing product. It's probably a good idea, but that's not <laughs> what this guy was talking about. Nope. Right? I mean, the pictures were part of it, but it was not about, oh, I'm going to show the features of this product pictorially. That wasn't the point. The point was, I'm going to show puppies and just make you you know, magically get the puppy juice on the product. Yeah, the, the, also the discussion of the competing product just sort of came out of nowhere. Yeah, totally. E, create advertisements containing pictures of things most members of the target audience like. Yeah, duh. I mean, that's what they were talking about. And that's what we've been saying. Puppies. And it's like you get to E here and it just feels boring and obvious. Mm-hmm. That's because it's the correct answer. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's easy. It's easier than people are making this out to be. And if you had like gotten trapped here, if you didn't, if you didn't pause to think about it and if you didn't make it clear to yourself that like, oh, this is why politicians kiss babies. If you didn't get to that, like if that's not your understanding of the, of what they're talking about, then yeah, you get trapped by all the wrong answers and you spend forever thinking about them and making these weird justifications for how they complete the argument. But if, if you if you really grasped what they were talking about, then E is just like, well, well, yeah. Yeah. 
And so it's E very confidently, and you're moving on to number 11. I think this is uh, an example of what we were talking about earlier. The only thing that's hard about this question is the fact that the, that the sentence is six lines long. And yeah, right. Exactly. And it's, easy, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. People just, they'll breeze right over that. They'll go, oh, therefore, blank. And then they'll just start reading the answer choices. Mm -hmm. And they have no, no clue whatsoever. You know, they're now they're just making shit up. You're not, you're not doing it. <laughs> you didn't understand. If you didn't understand what they said, then how the hell can you fill in that blank? Yeah. You, you can't. It's, it's, it's easier and it's harder than you think. I mean, you're, you're making it hard on yourself by not taking the time to understand. Yeah. But I think people think like, oh, I didn't get it. I'm supposed to get it. Well, all right. It is your job to get it. Mm -hmm. But if you have to read it twice to get it, then you have to read it twice. Yeah. Whatever. No shame in that. I mean, the shameful part is just going too quickly into the answer choices and picking a wrong answer. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, welcome, Graham. Graham just joined us, and uh, you are coming from... Hi, everyone. I'm in from Montreal. Montreal. And let me just say this really quick, Graham. So Graham is the... Uh, what should I say? The owner of LSAC Hacks, right? Yeah. And what else What else do you do? So, I mean, like LSAT-wise, LSAT Hacks is like the big thing. Um, I have a few print books, but they're kind of like a legacy thing. Like I made all the explanations that I write. So I, I wrote a series of free explanations for LSAT prep tests and are now free online at LSAT Hacks. And on LSAT Hacks, I have those explanations. I have uh, like free email course people can do. Mm -hmm. And then recently, earlier in the year, I released a recorded video course that people can study with. And that's kind of like my main LSAT operations. Like a little bit of tutoring, but it's not like my mainstay anymore. Yeah. So, and this is, I mean, LSAC hacks is basically how... LSAT hacks. Not wait. LSAC. Oh, did I say... Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> LSAT hacks is basically how... I mean, I don't remember when we first started talking, but... Somehow through that, I mean, you emailed me or I emailed you. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, I think but. So. It might have been through Reddit. I also run the the sub the LSAT subreddit on Reddit, and okay. I went through a period of kind of like looking for like independent uh, LSAT course instructors like yourself and Nathan. Oh yeah, um, and so okay. I probably like found you that way. Okay, you guys are the I would say the two most prominent in that category. Oh, cool. Good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> so, this and people will remember that Graham was on the show uh, way back too. I mean, that was like in the first ten episodes, I think. Graham yeah. Was on. Yeah, that was a long time ago. And and Graham and I have never met in person. And you emailed me yesterday or the day before, and you said, "Hey, I'm coming to DC." Yeah. <laughs> and it was yeah. So what brings you here? Um, so it's been a bit of a random trip. I I have this thing like on my emails that I send out where I say like, "Hey, I like traveling. Mm -hmm. um, anyone want to like host me for LSAT advice?" And I hadn't actually done that before. I just like put it out and figured like eventually an interesting offer would come. And then uh, else, a student who'd used my site in Vermont mm -hmm. um, originally invited me to like visit Vermont, but then like turned out that wouldn't work. And like we had some back and forth. And eventually she's like, "You want to come to like my family's for Thanksgiving?" Oh wow! <laughs> so I actually had like an American Thanksgiving with uh, her her family, and it was really great. Oh wow! And, like, cool. Yeah, um, and then I figured since I was already there, why not just like travel on to like New York and DC because it's pretty easy to get there by train. Okay. And I've just like met a few LSAT people like along the way. Yeah. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Like kind of a part tourism, part like actually meeting Ben Olson in person, <laughs> and meeting like yeah, pre-law advisors, that kind of thing. Yeah. So the the crazy thing, I, 
Oh, I don't know if I told you this on the way in, but uh, Nathan is yeah. not in California today. Oh, where he you at, is. Yeah, uh, I'm in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we have still never spoken to each other, not across the U.S. Canada border. Wow, we're just doing it the other way this time. Um, check out Trinity College at the University of Toronto. Trinity College. Yeah, and they've, and they've got a few like University College there too. Some of the most beautiful architecture in the city. They're like these really old, like Gothic revival. The Trinity kind of has a reputation of looking like Hogwarts. I think I walked through there yesterday. Actually, <laughs> we went we went for a long walk uh, across town and walked through parts of the University of Toronto. But there were definitely places that were very beautiful, uh, old stone buildings and that sort of thing. Is it walkable from downtown? Oh, definitely. It... Like if you are in University of Toronto, and you saw like old stone things. You have a very high odds of having gone through it. Cool. Yeah, it's an awesome city, man. Toronto's amazing. Oh yeah, it's fun. I was just there. I actually taught a, I taught an LSAT course there, like traveling. It was like the first time I tried doing that. I just like emailed people from my site and arranged a group in Toronto and like used it as a way to like go there. And it's pretty fun. Yeah. Great. Cool. What What brings you to Toronto? Oh, I have friends that just moved here. Um, my friend Nikki, who's a lawyer, had to move here for work. So we usually spend Thanksgiving together, American Thanksgiving. And so I came here for American Thanksgiving <laughs> in Canada. <laughs> yeah, you guys really did yeah. trade places there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. So Nathan was telling me that I have to go to Canada. And now that you're here, it seems like the most appropriate thing. I don't even know. Do you have to have a passport to go up there? Or do you can you just get in with a driver's license? So I just looked at the U.S., forms for me getting in and you need a passport or an enhanced driver's license i don't know what an enhanced driver's license is but if you haven't purposely tried to get one you probably don't have it no okay. i think it's got like maybe like a fingerprint or something on it hmm. um but yeah so you ought to have a passport because i don't think you actually need one to get into canada but i think you might need one to get back into america oh okay there's yeah, yeah look into it <laughs> so nathan i guess you have your passport I do, yeah. It might be different flying versus driving, or it might have changed recently. I know you used to be able to drive a car across the U.S.-Canadian border without a passport. Just show your driver's license. Like I did that and drove into Vancouver from Washington State, and that was no problem. But that was years ago, Yeah. and this time, to, to get on the plane, they definitely required a passport. They wouldn't let me get on the plane in L.A. without a passport. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Cool. Well, where should I go? Should I go to Toronto? Should I go to Montreal? Somewhere else? I like both of those. Like, they're very different styles. Like, Montreal is kind of like more like old architecture, uh, pre-car city. Mm -hmm. um, Toronto's like the place where like everything is happening now. Yeah. Um, so it's got a lot of energy, a lot of restaurants, um, and it's just like bigger. So I like both of them, but they're different vibes. Okay. Um, and then on the East Coast, like. Halifax is really nice, and if you go there and like rent a car in the summer, it's a really nice road trip area, like just through the countryside. Okay, so summer maybe. Yeah, summer summer Nova Scotia is very very nice. Yeah, the thing I think about Canada every time I do think about it, which is not <laughs> not as often as it should be, but I think you know it's really cold in like North Dakota and stuff. Like I imagine those states are kind of cold, and I'm like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, there's an entire country. Yeah. <laughs> above that. Yeah, colder. So, yeah. Yeah. So, but Nathan says it's warm there today. Yeah, it's a uh, climate change weird yeah. fall. It's been like sort of summerish up until very recently. Okay. Yeah, very very unusual. Way warmer than normal because the further north you go, the further warmer it is compared to like places further south. 
Really? Yeah, like the Arctic is... The North Pole right now is 32 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than normal. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's not <laughs> ominous at all. Yeah. Uh, okay, good. Well, um... <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm always, like, really, like, grim when I'm on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> were, were you grim last time? I don't remember. I, I think I gave some, like, dire warnings about law school debt. <laughs> ah, okay. That, that's, that's good. That's what, we're here, that's what we're here to do, actually. Yeah. It's a perfect fit, Graham. We, we do that every time. Okay. <laughs> we ask people why they're, why they're even going to law school. <laughs> good. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. Nathan, do you have any questions for Graham? We have this, this dedicated expert. I just want to know what he's doing while he's in D.C. Did you go to the museum? Or are you going to the museum? Not yet. I just got in last night. Um, what I did so far was actually, I was staying with a friend in College Park, which is, like, for those who don't know D.C., it's, like, northeast of D.C. in Maryland, because, um, like, all the suburbs of D.C. are not D.C. And it turns out I was, like, right beside the university, so I actually just kind of, like, wandered over to the pre-law advisor's office and was like, hey, anyone free to meet? <laughs> and just, like, kind of <laughs> and, ended up actually being able to meet with him, like, just chatted with them. And, oh, uh, that's cool. Um and then I've, like, come in here. I'm probably going to, like, go see a museum, like, later today. Mm-hmm. And tomorrow I'm going to the National Art Gallery, which, like, actually I did an internship in D.C. before, but somehow, like, I didn't go. Oh, okay. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's been on my list of, of like, things. life things to do. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to do it tomorrow. Cool. What should I do uh, museum-wise in Toronto? I went to the Ago yesterday. Yeah, that's a good one. That's the Art Gallery of Ontario. And then um, the ROM is really good. The Royal Ontario Museum. Okay. They have, I don't feel like, like, ancient Roman stuff, but they have, like, a pretty good ancient Roman Mediterranean exhibit. But they've got all kinds of things. They've got natural history, uh, historical stuff, some art. Um, ROM. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah I, that's, that's the main one, actually. There's, I can't think of another one. There must be another museum that I went to and liked in Toronto, but those two would be the big two. Okay, excellent. I know what we could do. We could do a logical reasoning question. Sure. Let, let Graham take a crack at it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. All right. So what we've been doing, Graham, is we've been reading uh, LR questions from the June 2007 LSAT. Okay. To avoid the uh, copyright issues. And Like um, literally reading them verbatim? Yeah. Yeah, and then talking about them as we go. So we just did question 10, and we are now on question 11. Yeah. Um, uh, stuffed seabirds question. Yeah. <laughs> this is a good one. You know it. Yeah. Good. Uh, so, Nathan, do you want to read it, or what would be best? Sure. Okay. It says, Feathers recently taken from seabirds stuffed and preserved in the 1880s have been found to contain only half as much mercury as feathers recently taken from living birds of the same species. Since mercury that accumulates in a seabird's feathers as the feathers grow is derived from fish eaten by the bird, these results indicate that mercury levels in saltwater fish are higher now than they were 100 years ago. What do you think about that? I think it's a puzzling situation. Um, I don't know. Do you want me to start? I have, like, as you were reading that, I was remembering, like, I just taught this in the course, that Toronto course, which is why it's, like, fresh in my memory. And I remember a way that, like, students commonly, like, misread the stimulus. And I've just noticed, like, specific words that I think are, like, pretty crucial. Yeah, so what are, cool. what are the ways in which they misinterpret it? Why do you think that is? So the sentence that says, since mercury that accumulates in a seabird's feathers as the feathers grow is derived from fish eaten by the bird. I think a lot of students were thinking about, you know, like, oh, maybe, like, in modern times, there's, like, pollution that gets in the feathers, like, some other way. Hmm. 
But let me know what you guys think about this. But I think when I say since Mercury like is derived from the fish, I think there's an implied only in that sentence that like that that's the only source of the Mercury in the feathers. I'm I'm not 100% certain on that point though. Am I interpreting that phrase correctly? Oh, okay. So what is it? so? First of all, let's just clarify what exactly it's saying. So mercury that accumulates in the seabird's feathers as the feathers grow is derived from fish. Um, yeah, it seems to be talking about all of that mercury. Right. Yeah, that's how I would have interpreted it. All the mercury, if mercury is accumulating in a seabird's feathers, then that has to come from fish eaten by the bird. So yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't have made it explicit and said, oh, I think there's an implied only there. Yeah. But I do think you're right, Graham, that that's a necessary condition. Yeah, I don't see any quantifier like most or some, just straight up mercury. Yeah, and I think this is like a bit of a rare phrase, like since this is that, is like not, you know, it's not like if this, then that type mm -hmm. condition. Mm -hmm. But I think this is a conditional, and that I, I said implied only not because it's like grammatically necessary, but just to drive from the point for listeners that like that's what the sentence means. And I think that sentence might be what makes this hard, since a lot of people can think that there are other sources. Um, but the LSAT is so literal mm -hmm. that when they say something like this, it's got to be like 100%. Um, like they, they actually mean what they say, whereas in everyday life you might say like, well, since like my food comes from the grocery store, mm -hmm. we don't actually mean that like you never get food from a restaurant or from a convenience store or from anywhere else. But mm -hmm. they do mean that here. Yeah. Yeah, um, and a lot of the wrong answers have to do with, or at least one of the trap answers has to do with, like some other source. So th that was one of the first things I noticed. Yeah, and so since this is a premise, you have to accept it as true, even though, um, yeah. And so first of all, you have to accept it as true, and whatever it is saying, you have to accept that as well. So people have to know that that's saying that it's only from the fish eaten by the bird. Um, okay, cool. Any other thoughts? Um, and I think that also like really constrains like how to think about it because then okay so what are our situations we've got these old birds all of their mercury came from fish and they have less mercury then we've got new birds all of their mercury came from fish and they have more mercury so the like normal way of viewing it if we were assuming this author was right is that there's more mercury in the fish because that's where it came from mm -hmm. but we know that's not right because it's a a flaw, a necessary assumption question. Yep, yep. So then at that point, what I want to do is kind of think like, what's another way that there could be less mercury that didn't have to do with them getting less mercury in the first place? So assume that they had as much mercury mm -hmm. and now they don't. Mm -hmm. That that was my thought process on this. Okay. Did you make any predictions or did you just say, mm, there's got to be something else? I, I think I was like, uh... Well, there's like stuffed and preserved in a museum, so I don't know. Does mercury degrade? Does like stuffing do something? Yeah. Um, I, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. um, but I was like thinking something in that line. I get there might also be other possibilities, like maybe like they haven't said what types of birds these are. I didn't think of that when I when I thought about it. But I guess so. I guess I'm doing two things. I'm like one, letting whatever, like if I have an intuitive thought, you know, like oh they've been in a museum a while, maybe the mercury faded. Mm -hmm. Does Mercury do that? Like that that's something I thought when I was reading that. Mm -hmm. I remember when I first did this, that was my first impression. I, I, I like use that thought because often intuition will highlight something that like might actually be the answer. Mm -hmm. And but then I I don't try to be too specific and I try and leave myself open to like other possibilities that fit within that framework of they had as much as before, now they have less Y. Yeah. You came up first with a weakener, right? 
Um, yeah, see, I... And then can you phrase that as a necessary assumption? I definitely could. I think I don't in practice do that. Um, so I'll say, like, what I usually do on any sort of flawed argument, so that would be like a weakened strength and necessary assumption, I usually just try and think, like, what's wrong with it? What's an alternate possibility? And then, you know, if this was a strengthen question to strengthen, you would say, like, there is no nothing in the stuffing process that lowers mercury. Mm-hmm. If it was a weakened question, it would be, there is something in the stuffing process that lowers mercury. Necessary assumption would be something like, there is no factor in the stuffing process that lowers mercury. Mm-hmm. Or mercury does not degrade with time. Because if you negate that and say mercury does degrade with time, then that wrecks the argument. So I guess I usually don't prephrase specifically based on the type of question. I'm instead looking for like, I'm trying to predict the flaw and then we'll match it to. I just like to point that out for students that you can, if you can come up with a weakener, you could also phrase that as a strengthener or as an assumption of the argument. Right, for every weakener, there's a corresponding necessary assumption. Good point. Yeah, and the other thing I wanted to just stop and kind of elaborate on, which you said earlier, was you said, hey, this argument sort of makes sense, but because it's a necessary assumption question, we know there has to be a problem. So if you're reading this argument and you feel like, okay, I'm kind of cool with this, and then you look at the question that says the argument depends on assuming something, you're like, wait a sec, there has to be a problem. That's the sort of red flag that you need to go back and think about how this might not necessarily be true. I mean, hopefully you're doing that anyway, but especially if you thought the argument was okay and then you saw that question stem. Yeah, that's a very good point. One thing you also made me think of is I think uh, it's very important to actually go back when you see it's a flawed one. You also want to think like, how could this argument be right? Mm -hmm. Because if you think like, what else does it need to be right? You have then identified the assumption. Mm -hmm. Um, so I want to see like how it could be right and how it could be wrong, and that's where you then have like a gap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. Uh, should we jump into the answers? I think we're set. Nathan, did you have any other thoughts on the? No, I think that's great. That's a, that's exactly what I. I mean, I would have come up with a different objection, mm-hmm. which I think is also a point to make. Yeah. Is that you know Graham is like, well, hey, and it's perfectly reasonable. Hey, maybe the mercury degraded. Um, mine was, hey, maybe fish today or maybe birds today eat twice as much as they mm, used to. Good point. Right? Yep. Then there wouldn't there could be the constant amount of mercury per fish, but they just eat twice as much fish, so now they have more mercury. Yeah. I guess what I would like to point out that that Ben could have come up with something different and a million different people could have come up with a million different alternate explanations. Each one of those is a potential answer here uh, if you phrase it as a necessary assumption. Like you are assuming that this did not happen. Often, like, so many different ways a question could go. So when I prephrase, I'm not, like, you know, wedded to a specific thing. I'm like, oh, great, well, if it's this, that's good. And then I think even just thinking of one often opens your mind to, like, different possibilities. But, like, I, I quick, kind of quickly scan the answers, see if, like, what I found was there or something that matches. But I don't get flustered if, like, my prephrase doesn't match because it's only, like, a 60 70% thing. For sure. Yeah, and I think a lot of people do get kind of stuck on that. And they're like, I didn't find my prediction. And it's like, well... Yeah. It's good that you predicted it. That doesn't mean that it was a waste of time. Yeah. It's just something that you also need to be open to other possibilities. Ben, uh, what was your prediction? Did you have like a third thing that you can also like help people uh, so they can see? You know, it's funny. I, I kind of had the same prediction about the stuffing. I was like, yeah. stuffed birds? That's <laughs> like, what? 
what the heck happens to a bird when it gets stuffed? So yeah. uh, I think we were kind of th- thinking along the same lines. Yeah. So interestingly, like, I think you were focusing on the stuffing. I think my first one was like, what if just like sitting in a museum, like the time aspect? Sure. So, so yeah, we yeah. Had, any we of that, had, like, yeah. We all had like three different. Yeah. Cool. So answer A. It says the argument depends on assuming that. So yeah, this is a necessary assumption question. A says the proportion of a seabird's diet consisting of fish was not as high on average in the 1880s as it is today. Hmm. Graham, you want to take them? I haven't fully thought through it. It's hitting on <laughs> like it's it's relevant to the um, like diet thing that you raised. What I usually do is I'd be like, that's a maybe. And then I would keep going on, and then once I'm down to like two, I would then think about it because I find I get kind of like my mind gets kind of cluttered, and sometimes E will be like obviously right, and then I don't have to think about A. But A, A seems relevant, but I have to actually do some mental math about like proportions to. Did you guys have any thoughts like? Yeah. So if the proportion, yeah, I mean, I I, I totally understand what you're saying. Like sometimes you're like, hey, this answer seems like hmm, not necessarily bad not necessarily obviously wrong but at the same time i don't want to sit there and try to figure it out so i'll just leave it open and then go to the others that's what you're saying right yeah yeah just thinking about this right now my gut reaction is wait i feel like this is going in the opposite direction but if the proportion of the diet that was consisting of fish was not as high then um that could explain why they had less mercury with having the same amount of mercury levels in the fish. Yeah, it's tough because it is directly on target. It's just going the wrong way. A is actually weakening by itself, and we want something that will weaken if it's false. But yeah, I I totally get it, Graham, and that might be how I would have done it too. I might have gone, oh, that seems like it's on target. Let me just get rid of the worse answers. Yeah, because usually when I would approach it, what I'm still doing is I'm still thinking like, I still kind of bet it's going to be about the stuffing, this diet thing is relevant, but I don't want to think about which way the proportion should go. Like, because I think the opposite of this answer would be right, right? I, I, I have to, actually would have to think about that statement, but I guess my approach is, like, my brain even almost, like, shuts off until I've, like, done the sweep, um, <laughs> which is right. sort of interesting, doing it, like, one at a time now. Um, but, yeah, that's yeah. how I do it. Okay, cool. Let's, let's move on. B says, the amount of mercury in a saltwater fish depends on the amount of pollution in the ocean habitat of the fish. We'll let you do the answer choices because you're a, you're a guest. Okay, sure. So, like, my thinking is, like, I don't care why the mercury's there. I just want the fish to have mercury. I don't care if, like, aliens put it there. I don't care if it's pollution. I don't care if it's naturally occurring. Like, I just... I think in advance I was kind of, like, defining, like, I know the fish have mercury. I don't care why the fish have mercury. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's totally right. C says, mercury derived from fish is essential for the normal growth of a seabird's feathers. Yeah, so this also just kind of like explains why there is mercury, but it doesn't get at the amount. Um, And answers like this are pretty common for like just, I don't know, giving a reason for something when we don't care about reasons. Mm -hmm. And it gets you thinking like, oh, is this true? Oh, is this like... You know, I I just want to add two things about B and C. Uh, B uses the phrase depends on and C uses essential, which are really strong terms. Uh, That doesn't necessarily mean that the answers are wrong. But when I'm going through a necessary assumption question and asking myself, does this absolutely have to be true? 
I'm going to be pretty like put off yeah. by those those strong terms saying does it absolutely depend on it um yeah that that raises a good point cuz like a lot of people think about negations in terms of like just making it like the polar opposite or um but like a negation has got to be like the very slightest thing mm-hmm. so even just one instance that's contrary would mean that it is a negation yeah uh, D says the stuffed seabirds whose feathers were tested for mercury were not fully grown. I don't even know how that's relevant, but like if we negate it and say they were fully grown, um, that doesn't seem to wreck the argument. In fact, I yeah. think we'd want to be comparing fully grown yeah. birds. Assuming the recent ones were fully grown as well. Yeah. 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 For that reason too, it's like not something that we, it, it can't be necessary because since we don't know which, growth state the new ones were in um it doesn't matter if the old ones were fully grown we just need consistency um so if this answer was something like the stuffed seabirds whose feathers were tested were at the same size and had this i don't know they, they could have made an answer out of that like making sure the two comparison groups were the same but that's not what this answer is doing yeah if in order to make it the answer if they did it that way it would probably be like the birds in the first study were not 10 years older than the birds in the last study or something like that. You know what I mean? To make it extreme so that if that were the case, it would obviously blow up the argument. Yeah. Cool. E says the process used to preserve birds in the 1880s did not substantially decrease the amount of mercury in the bird's feathers. (laughs) Yeah. So if we negate them and say they did substantially decrease the amount, then, well, that, that seems pretty much like our answer. It's what I was expecting as well. And probably because I've done this before too, but I think I was expecting something like that the first time I did this. Yeah, this would, if you negated that, it would seriously destroy the argument. Because it's an alternate explanation. It's an alternate explanation. Alternate explanations are great weakeners. And E would, E, if it's false, it becomes that, that alternate explanation weakener. And I want to point something out in the same vein of what Ben was saying about, like, you know, it depends on, where, like, the negation depends on, I mean, like, there is one instance where it was not required, and in all others it was. I mean, if you want to think about, like, what's the the least distance you can go to still negate, that would be what depends on it. Whereas, for something like E, notice I've added the word substantially in there. So that restricts our action. So, you know, if we say, like, the process used to preserve birds in the 1880s did not decrease the amount of mercury in the birds' feathers... I'm not sure that would actually work because, say, it decreased it by 0.00001%. That can't explain half as much mercury. So that would not be a good answer. But if we're talking about substantially decrease, then we need at least, I mean, I don't know if we would need half, but we would need a, a sizable amount. And that's what makes this answer like a powerful answer. So looking for kind of like qualitative words like that in necessary assumptions can often affect like the strength of an answer. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because sometimes people will uh, be arguing with the correct answer that says substantially or, yeah, it's usually the word substantially um, or dramatically or something like that. And they'll be like, well, I thought this was a good answer, but I didn't like the fact that it said dramatically or substantially. And it's like, actually, that's precisely why (laughs) it's a good answer. Because (laughs) if you negate that, then you have a substantial decrease, which is a big problem as opposed to a slight decrease, which could do nothing. Yeah. So. Awesome. Should we go back and negate A just to make sure? 
Yeah, sure. So here it's kind of nice because answer choice A just has the the knot in it, right? Yeah. So how would you negate that? Graham? I would get rid of the knot, and I would say the proportion of seabirds die consisting fish was as high on average in the 1880s as it is today. And I would add, actually, that since this doesn't have a word like substantially, even mm-hmm. if this was reversed, do you guys think that would be the right answer, or could it be consistent that like the diet had you know like a point zero zero one percent change, and we're not explaining the half. Like, I'm actually not sure in that point because I haven't really seen them tested that much. Yeah, at that, I guess at that point it really depends on the other answers, right? Like if yeah. the four other answers are horrible, then you say, well, okay, that's it. <laughs> but Yeah, because I think E is actually not strictly necessary. Yeah. I mean, even if, even if it did substantially decrease, it still doesn't have to mean that the fish had more mercury. Because right? it could have been less than half, you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Which I had the same saying. thought too, which I yeah. didn't notice when I did this before, but now that we're talking about it so precisely, yeah, that is like not, it, it's clearly, even if A was the opposite of what it is and was like in the correct direction, E would still be stronger than A, but that doesn't make E like strictly necessary. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't really right. count as like a flaw in this question, like this question's composition, but it's interesting to note. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, our job is to pick the right answer, right? And E is the best one. When you negate E, it becomes a pretty damn good weakener. Yeah. And that's the nature of the necessary assumptions, even if they're not totally, you know, if we had to stick up our ass, we would just say (laughs) this question is invalid. But it's not invalid because we're all going to get it right. You know, we know what we're doing on this type of question, and we would be able to identify E as the one they were looking for. Yeah. Yeah. When, going back to A just really quick, when you do negate it, it all, it seems to strengthen it, right? When it says they were as high as it is today, that's would be a good thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That yeah. yeah, the negation of A, it it's a good thing, and that's why it's wrong. Yeah. Awesome. I hate to end this this party so soon, but um, apparently I'm supposed to be on a call. So, what else can we do to wrap up? <laughs> Give out uh, Graham's information one more time. It's uh, lsathacks.com. Graham is the uh, moderator of the Reddit LSAT forum, so you can find him over there as well as on his website. Anything else? Yeah, that's right. So reddit.com slash r slash LSAT. Um, that's pretty much it. I mean, like, I've got the explanations and the course now that people can check out. Those are the main things that... I'm up to and they can find on the site. And I think that's pretty much it. How can people contact you? Email, Twitter? Um, email's the best way. There's a, like, about the author thing on my site where there's mm-hmm. an email address. Mm-hmm. Or they can sign up for the email course and they'll get a bunch of emails from me and then they can just reply to one of those. Okay, great. Are you on Twitter? Uh, yeah, but I don't really use it much. We are in the same boat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You can tweet the show at ThinkingLSAT. I am on Twitter yeah. at InFox. You can email both Ben and me, help at thinkinglsat.com. I think that's it, Graham. Awesome to talk to you on short notice. That's fantastic. It's a nice surprise. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been uh, good to be on the podcast again. Yeah, thanks. Cool. Enjoy your the rest of your travels in D.C., and uh, we'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Thank you. I was just going to add my, my email since you said it. Mine is graham at lsathacks.com, and that's G-R-A-E-M-E at lsidehacks.com. Awesome. Thanks for coming, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah, thanks.